following is a sermon preached at Grace Church of Orange, California. Join us now as we go verse by verse through God's inspired, inerrant, infallible Word. And what a privilege it is to open up the Word of God together today. Uh, God's going to do something in our hearts, in our fellowship, as we open up our Bibles. And so open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 10. Romans 10, and if you're able, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. We're going to read Romans chapter 10, verses 8 through 10, where we're going to see that believing the gospel in our hearts, believing that Jesus rose from the dead, and confessing Christ as Lord are a part of salvation. We're going to see what that means and why it's so important, both in our lives and in the church. So hear the Word of God. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Let's pray. Lord, we acknowledge you, your greatness, your goodness. And we thank you, Lord, that you have given us your word, and I pray that you would open our eyes that we would see wonderful things in your word today. Change us, challenge us, comfort us. Do whatever work you want in our hearts, and may it affect not only our lives, but our families and then the household of faith. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. I love these three verses. They're, they're beautiful. They're, they're well-known. They are, they are confusing to a lot of people. Some people will look at this and say, wait, believe and confess and you will be saved. Is that a secret formula that I'm supposed to follow in order to be saved? Is that a, a recipe that I need you know, to write down? Do I just think something and say something and then it'll be true in my life, and I'll be in, I'll be going to heaven. I'm here to tell you today, it's so much more. It is just so much more, uh, and, and it gets to the heart of the question, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? And if you're going to ask that question, you need to also ask a question before that. Why do I need to be saved? Why do I need to be saved? Now, Romans has told us, for the first three chapters, it was telling us how sinful and depraved humanity is. Sin separates us from God. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. And few are going to argue that. I mean, really, we know something is wrong with us. Someone once asked comedian Will Rogers, What's wrong with the world? And he replied, well, I don't know, I guess it's people. The Times of London once ran an article entitled, What's Wrong with the World? And G.K. Chesterton replied, I am. That was his reply, I am, yours truly, G.K. Chesterton. We're all sinners, and we're all in need of, of a way to deal with our sin. And if you look around and you ask people, you're going to find so many 
unfounded answers out there, basically people's wishful thinking. It depends on who you talk to, but one person might tell you, well, it depends on what religion you follow, and as long as you do what they require, you're in. Others will say, no, it's morals and integrity. If you're moral and upstanding and you have integrity, if you're a good person, if you don't get in trouble, if you're just a nice, caring person, you treat people well, uh, you'll get into heaven. Others will say, no, you need to believe in a higher power. And then you just have to hope you've done enough. Live right, go to church, pray to God, do good. A lot of religious people will have false assurance even. Uh, many people will say, well, I'm a good person. I prayed the sinner's prayer. I accepted Jesus. Like, like oh, Jesus needed to be accepted by you? He needed your acceptance. <clears throat> well, I went forward in, a, in an altar call. Of course I'm saved. A lot of people will say this. Now, the sinner's prayer can give you false assurance. Well, I just prayed a prayer. I said the words, and I'm in. I can do whatever I want. A lot of people I know know people in their life, and they're banking on a prayer they prayed once, but their life doesn't reflect a follower of Christ. Now, it's not bad if there's evidence of true biblical repentance in your life and life changed by the Spirit of God, but just saying something with no fruit at all, that's false. A lot of people will say, well, I feel saved. I, I sing to God. I, I pray to Him. I, I praise Him. I lift my hands. I listen to Christian music. I go to Christian concerts. Others will say, I do good deeds. I pay my tithes. I do good works. I give to charities. I help the poor. Others will say, I'm religious. I go to church. I got baptized or confirmed. I, I pray. I read my Bible. I, I fast. I'm involved in ministry. I help. And every one of these people are going to say, I'm in because of that. Others will say, well, I have a Christian title. I'm a pastor or a teacher or a musician or an author or a speaker or a leader or a helper. Others will say, well, no, I'm in because I go to a certain church. You know, I'm Lutheran, I'm Baptist, I'm Pentecostal, I'm Grace Brethren, or I go to so-and-so's church. By the way, you know how many times I've talked to people and they'll tell me where they go to church and I'll say, what's your pastor's name? And they're like, you know, can't remember happens all the time other people will say well i know i'm going to heaven because god is blessing me and he is prospering me i sow seeds and god gives me a harvest others will say well there's spiritual gifts in my life i speak in tongues i heal i cast out demons i prophesy i do miracles in jesus name other people will say well i've had spiritual experiences I, I, I'm a mystic, you know, I, I'm a spiritual person. I do yoga, I do contemplative prayer. Others will just say they're superstitious and that they're getting in because of that. I took the Enneagram test, I understand myself, I took the road back to me. Uh, as long as I act right, I'm good. I'm here to tell you today, if you're thinking any of those things are going to get you into heaven, you've got to ask yourself this question, am I saved? Or am I self-deceived? Am I saved or self-deceived? Well, this is why I'm so excited about Romans chapter 10, verses 8 through 10. Because up against what amounts to pagan idolatry and pagan lies is a true call to discipleship. These three verses are a call to discipleship. 
Believe in Christ. Confess him as Lord. Yield your entire life to him. Believe and confess and you will be saved. Now, lest you think that, you know, all you have to do is say, Lord, I need you to go to Matthew 7 with me. Matthew chapter 7. We'll just read a couple verses there. We'll pick it up at verse 21. Jesus said this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. The beginning of Romans 10 told us the law shows us our sin, uh, sets the standard for God's holiness, points us to Christ. You go on and it's telling us that works righteousness is humanly impossible, that God made salvation readily available, and you don't need to chase through the universe to figure it out on your own. God sent Christ in the incarnation and raised him in the resurrection. He made the way very clear. It is a righteousness by faith. It's about salvation. What you see in this passage, two things really. In verse 8, we see that God saves by the preaching of the word. Verse 8. And then we see in verses 9 and 10, God saves through the yielding response of faith. It's all about salvation. God saves by the preaching of the word, and he saves through the yielding response of faith. Look with me at verse 8. God saves by his word. So contrary to popular opinion that you need to work really, really hard to earn your place in heaven is this answer that shocks our pride. Verse 8 says, but what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. So if you wonder what it is, it's the word of faith that we proclaim, literally preach. Speaking with the voice of Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 14, and it's speaking of the availability of God's word, the word of faith that we preach. And Paul is contrasting the impossible task of gaining righteousness with God by, by keeping the rules of the law, but that righteousness and life in Christ is available by believing the word that he and his co-workers preached. Did you notice it says the word of faith that we are preaching? This is why Gentiles receive righteousness, though they weren't looking for it and, and pursuing it, and why unbelieving Israelites failed and stumbled because they were trying so hard on their own. If that's you today and you're like, I'm trying so hard on my own, I want to keep all the plates spinning, I want to keep God happy with me, I can't step out of line, I want to make sure I get to heaven and do as much as I can to get there, then Romans 10, 8 through 10 should be a breath of fresh air for you because Paul is getting at the simplicity of the gospel message. Confessing faith versus the strict demands of law, of working your way to God. What, what does it mean that the word is near us? What does that mean? It says the nearness of the word to your mouth and heart. That's your whole life, it's your whole being, it's your whole soul, and it's referring to the proclamation of the gospel, the content of the faith you believe, the act of trusting in Christ. 
Now, in the Old Testament, Joshua 1.8 says this, the law shall not depart out of your mouth. You were to be constantly familiar with it. Uh, Jews were brought up with, with hearing the word of God, and it was to be uh, finding its way into their hearts. In Exodus 13.9, it says this law should be in your mouth. And, and we have seen this already, that the law always pointed to the need for faith in the Redeemer, it was to show us our need for Christ. It was the signpost to show us we couldn't do it on our own. And Israel was without excuse. Christ had shown up, and he fulfilled the law, and they rejected him. And the scriptures had told them before he ever came that he was going to come. In fact, after the resurrection, Jesus said in Luke 24, these are my words which I spoke to you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms would be fulfilled. He's pointing them back to the Old Testament scriptures and saying they all pointed to me and they're all fulfilled in me. The word of faith that was to be on the lips of religious Jews back then was the word of faith, faith in the Redeemer. The law that they read, the law that they recited pointed to Christ. They stumbled over Christ. That God's righteousness, this is telling us God's righteousness is near, it is available, present in the message being preached in the word of the faith, the gospel that, that Paul has been preaching now for nine plus chapters. The gospel's in every chapter in the book of Romans. The only way you miss the gospel as you're going through Romans is if you've missed the gospel and you're blinded uh, to the gospel. Uh, the commandment, the word of God here, indicates Christ, who is the word of God. In John chapter 1, verse 1, it tells us, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. In verse 14, it says, the word became flesh, there's the incarnation, and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And verse 17 tells us, the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. So the word is near you means that you don't have to try some impossible process, you know, ascend into heaven or descend into the abyss to find Christ and be saved. You can believe in Jesus right now and be saved. This is spoken in real time to people. So if that's you today and you're not trusting in Christ, you can believe in Jesus right now and be saved. And believe that he died on the cross in our place, was buried, rose from the dead on the third day, and he is coming back. He is returning. In fact, we're going to partake of the Lord's table after the sermon. And Paul said, as often as you eat of the bread and drink of the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. We're proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes again. What's in between his death and him coming again? The resurrection. When, when you're proclaiming his death, you're, you're proclaiming everything that Jesus did and what he came to do and him accomplishing that and his promise to return. The word is near you. You can believe in Jesus right now and be saved. You have to go on some big long journey and plan it all out and figure out how good you're going to be. You just place yourself at God's mercy. If that's you today, place yourself at God's mercy right now. Like right now, I just plead with you, believe in Jesus. Trust your soul upon him. 
what we see here is that God puts people right with himself by the preached word of Christ. Never by human initiative, never by human effort. So that's why we need to support the preaching of the word of God. That's why we need to listen to the preaching of the word of God. That's why we need to humbly submit to the preached word of God. Look at verse 8 again. What does it say? That literally means, what does the word of God say? Like, what's the word of God telling you right now? The, the word says, the word is near. You seen that? The word says, the word is near. The word of faith being proclaimed. The word of Christ, the gospel. Accepted by faith. God saves by the preaching of the word. And then we see, in these next two verses, God saves through the yielded response of faith. Verses 9 and 10. God saves through faith. Look at verse 9. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So a lot of people get hung up on this. They're like, so I've got to do two things in order to go to heaven. And so they're kind of checking boxes off, right? If you're a box checker, you're going to be like, I want to make sure I got it right. Okay? Well, what does it mean when it says if you confess your with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. What does that mean? First thing you need to understand is that verses 9 through 13 are explaining verse 8. So verses 9 through 13 are explaining verse 8. And faith involves confession that Jesus is Lord and God raised him from the dead. Now this was a confession held in common by the earliest Christian community. 1 Corinthians 15, 11 Paul is talking about the resurrection of Christ. And he says, the lordship of Christ, and he is saying, so we preach and so you believe. In Acts 2.36, Peter stands up on the day of Pentecost and he says, let all the house of Israel know, therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. In Romans 1 verse 4 he was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So the confession is connected to heart conviction. You believe it in your heart. Personal trust. You, you confess the Lordship of Christ and believe in His resurrection and you can't separate the two. You can't say, well, you know, I'm going to believe the resurrection, but I'm not going to confess Christ as Lord. Because Christ was appointed Lord at his resurrection. You can't deny one and have the other. You, 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 you're going to deny the gospel if that's the case. First, you've got confession of Christ's identity. He is God. He is Lord. When you, when you see that Jesus is Lord, now, if you think about the uh, Greek translation of the old testament is called the septuagint in the septuagint the the word for yahweh is translated over 8600 times with the word kurios lord making it very clear that jesus is the lord god almighty who created and sustains the universe so there's no misunderstanding here you're confessing christ's identity and then you are believing in his resurrection from the dead. And you're not just saying, well, sure, I believe in some improbable resuscitation of a dead corpse. 
What you're saying when you say you believe in the resurrection is that you are convinced that in the resurrection, God began to reverse sin's effects and recreate the world and, and reconcile all things to himself. Confession is connected to heart conviction. The content of the verbal confession is literally, the Lord is Jesus. The Lord is Jesus. Or Jesus is the Lord. Again, he's the Lord God of Israel. He's, he's the one who created and sustained the universe. And if you're here today and you're like, I don't see that at all, I don't believe that at all, it's because you're not a believer. And, and 2 Corinthians 4, 5 says that Satan has blinded the unbelieving from seeing this. Confession of Christ is what Christians do. You say he's the sovereign Lord over the universe. He is the victor over sin and death through his resurrection from the dead. And, and I believe this with all my heart. What that does, it gives you evidence that you're a believer. You're, you're, you're making a profession of, of faith that is backed up with your life. You're confessing. Now, by the way, someone could say, well, can I believe in my heart and never tell anyone can i stay in my closet and just kind of scream as loud as i can jesus is lord okay now by the way say jesus is lord as often as you want okay believe it in your heart yell it out in your closet as you're driving just you could just yell it out jesus is lord because you're saying he is god he's got all the authority of god my life is under him i am under his authority i believe that everything he came to do he did and he is who he says he is you can do that all day long it's always good to do okay no one can say jesus is lord except by the holy spirit first corinthians 12 3 if you have the holy spirit in you if you're you're born again you're regenerated, you, you, you're, a, you're a believer, then you're going to want to confess the lordship of Christ. That, and again, not just saying words, but that, that he is over your whole life. He is your authority. You, you love him because he first loved you. But someone who says, well, can I do that and just not tell anyone? You would be missing out and, 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 and actually missing an important part of what this confession of Jesus means. Because confession of Christ with your mouth actually has a community aspect and it's not just acknowledging something as facts you're identifying yourself with others who believe the same truth others who have the same conviction and so confessing with your mouth is not just you alone but there is a community aspect to this where you're confessing that jesus christ is lord with others who believe the same. So you're identifying yourself as a follower of Christ, and you stand then with others who believe the same. So if you're a believer today, and you've gathered here together today with us, good job. Has anybody said that to you recently? Just a good job for doing what God wants you to do? Good job. Confess. It's this community aspect. You're identifying with others who believe the same. You're openly acknowledging his authority as Lord, and, and you're saying this, he is exalted above all, all powers and principalities. The angels are subject to him. All power and authority in heaven and on earth is committed to him. And he is personally my Lord. You, you acknowledge his sovereignty, but also you recognize his authority over you. 
You're bowing the knee to Christ. You're acknowledging him as Messiah with all the power and prerogatives of God, and you're saying, and, and this is my Savior. This is my Lord. This is the one I'm, I'm, I'm trusting. This is the one I, I, I'm under his authority completely. He's in control. Primary sign of receiving the gospel was belief in the resurrection of Christ and confession of the lordship of Christ. Again, 1 Corinthians 12, 3. No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. And in Philippians 2, 11, it tells us that one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But this is not talking about that one day. This is talking about today. This is talking about those who hear this message and read these words from the Bible and acknowledge Christ in real time as they're living. You preach the Lord Jesus in the book of Acts just over and over again that Jesus is the Lord. Acts 11.20, preach him as the Savior. In Romans chapter 14, verse 9, it tells us that Christ both died and rose again that he might be Lord both of the dead and the living. There's this public confession of Christ that's frequent in the Bible in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus said, verse 30, Whoever shall confess me before men, I will confess before my Father who is in heaven. In 1 John 4, 15, Whoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. And this confession is built on faith, on your belief in the gospel message. And the truth to believe is that God raised Christ from the dead. You must believe the resurrection. You, you can't say, well, I believe that Jesus was a good guy and he was a great, a great example and I'm going to base my life upon him if you don't believe in the resurrection. You cannot be a Christian without believing in the resurrection. God has raised him from the dead. You, you, must, be, you must believe that. God, in the resurrection, recognized him as his son and the savior of the world, accepted his blood as a sacrifice for sin, in Acts chapter 17, verse 31, it says that he has given assurance to all people in that he raised him from the dead. They're preaching the gospel, and one of the key aspects is he was raised from the dead. We're not talking about a dead Savior. We're talking about a live Savior, alive from, from the dead, risen. And so you believe that Christ was risen from the dead? You're believing that, that he is all he claimed to be. He did everything he said he was going to do. Everything he came to do. Would you notice, according to these verses, it says you believe it in your heart? You see that? You don't miss this. It, believe it in your heart. You're, you're believing something personally. It, it's in your heart. It's not just some fact out there where you're doing a math problem or something. This is something that, that alters your entire being. It's always grounded in the deepest part of your being. It, it's your whole soul. It's everything about you. Now, confessing that truth is, is an outward thing you do, but faith includes all of you. It includes your, your understanding of things, your emotions, your, your affections. Saving faith is not merely in ideas in your mind. It's, it's not merely um, intellectual, but it has to engage your mind. You don't check your mind at the door when you believe in Christ. Saving faith, though, is not merely intellectual. It is you in your heart Resting your entire soul upon Christ. And you know how beautiful that is? You know how simple that is? You know, how, you know how, what a privilege to say, wow, God, 
did this. He opened my eyes to the gospel, and I can actually be in any kind of situation in my life and know that my soul is resting on Christ. You, you, you trust your entire soul upon God. You believe the gospel message. Verse 10 tells us, with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. That confuses a lot of people because you're like, wait, it was in one order in verse 9, now it's in another order in verse 10. What order am I supposed to go in? I'm confused. Why did Paul put confessing and believing in one order in verse 9 and switch the order in verse 10? I'm going to make it really simple for you. It's actually a very simple answer. Very simple answer. The order in verse 9 is the same order that Deuteronomy 30, verse 14, that was quoted in verse 8, had it in. So the order in verse 9 is, is from Deuteronomy 30, verse 14, in verse 8, and verse 9 is a commentary on Deuteronomy 30, verse 14. So it's going to follow that order. But in verse 10, so there's no confusion, it says believe with the heart and, and then confess with the mouth. So believing comes first and confessing comes next. So, so verse 9 takes the order from Deuteronomy 30, 14. Verse 10 puts it in logical order. The order is believe, then confess. And, and, and what you'll find is genuine confession of Christ as Lord, of the authority in your life, and your soul is resting on him. It's rooted in a heart conviction. It's not just saying something where you can check off the box and say, I said it, though I didn't believe it. You can't say it unless you believe it, or else it doesn't make any difference. When you confess it, it means you are agreeing. Here's what you're doing. You're saying, I'm saying the same thing God says. It's always a good thing to agree with God. You're confessing Jesus as Lord. You're agreeing with the Father's declaration that Jesus is Savior and Lord. So if you ever wonder, like, am I doing what God wants me to do? If you're confessing Jesus as Lord, you are right on track. And it's in your heart and your mouth. It's just your, your, your entire being is affected. It's about, you know, God forgave you of your sins when you came to faith in Christ. He gave you a new life by grace alone. This is, this is deeply, deeply personal. You found out when you, got, when you became a believer, you're like, wow, I can actually obey God now. I was trying so hard and always failing, and, and now God changed my heart, and I can actually obey him now. Praise God. I believe in my heart. I'm justified. I confess Christ and it shows that I'm saved. But you got justification here. That's the same word for righteous. He, he pronounces you righteous. He says, you're pleasing to me. By the way, justification and righteousness, that has to do with our sin. You remember the question about how can, what do I do to be saved? What do I do to deal with my sin problem? It's what Jesus did at the cross. And so you've got your sin dealt with, your guilt dealt with, your depravity being covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. And so you, you, you publicly want to profess that. You want to confess Christ. You inwardly believe and then you outwardly acknowledge Jesus is, is your Savior, your Lord, your prophet, your priest, your king, and everything the Bible says about him. Without faith, you have no part in the righteousness of God. Confessing Christ before others is is a privilege. It's such a privilege. It's like you telling others about your beloved spouse that you love so much. 
just can't say enough good things about them. It's about you telling others about your beloved child that you love so much. You just can't say enough good things about them. It's about you telling others about your beloved grandchild that you love so much. You just can't say enough good things about them. One of the, the special privileges that believers have is, is being baptized in obedience to Christ. And, and you give your testimony of your faith in Christ at baptism. It's, a, it's a, a wonderful privilege God gives us to express what he has done in our hearts. And the emphasis here is on the heart and the mouth. This is how you receive and agree with the word of God. The word of God, what God has done, the, the gospel, what God has done to save people. And, and these are not conditions that we meet to be saved. Don't walk away say, well, if I do these two things, I'm in. I, I, I'm just saying, it, it's so easy for Christians to be confused about the meaning of, of confession for salvation and all that. And uh, let me just wrap that part up before we get into some application and some implications. Some people will say these are two conditions for salvation. No. Others will say, well, they're synonyms. They mean exactly the same thing. That's a little confusing. What it is is this. Confession of Christ as Lord is evidence and outcome of your belief in the gospel message. The, the idea is, is that you know, salvation is bigger than we normally think. It's not just getting in the door with praying a prayer. It's, it's belief and confession and you're believing and you're confessing Christ as Lord as you're going along in Christ. There's a very practical lesson about this for us is that when you publicly identify with Christ, it has a sanctifying effect upon your life. It's like a good thing in your life. When you're acknowledging Christ as Lord, especially in the most difficult situation for you to actually say those things or even amongst people that are very opposed to those things, it has a sanctifying effect upon your life. What God in the gospel does is he inspires a heartfelt conviction that leads to your verbal confession. Believe and confess and you will be saved. God, God saves by the preaching of the word. God's, God saves through the yielding response of faith. And this is very crucial for every Christian to grasp. Very crucial. In fact, I want to bring out some, I think, some very serious implications. If you think through this passage, there's a lot of implications. I'm just going to give you six of them. Six implications uh, that we must take to heart. Uh, six serious salvation implications. And the first is this. It's not about making, the gospel is not about making good people better, but it's about saving objects of wrath. Because when you say, I, I want to be saved, you got to ask the question, saved from what? There's got to be a problem here. If you're getting rescued, and you're getting saved from the wrath of God. Romans 5.9 tells us that. And, and Romans 1.18 says God is already uh, revealing his wrath against sin in the present time, in part. But Romans 2.16 tells us final judgment will come on a day that he judges the hidden things according to the gospel. And, and you just got to know, if you want to be you know, rescued from wrath and judgment, there's nothing you can do on your own. Salvation is about believing what God has done in Christ and then identifying with others who believe, and, and you're denying yourself, you're, you're turning from sin, you're repenting, and you're following Christ. Now, there are a lot of people that say, I just cannot handle the wrath of God. 
God's a loving God. He's not a wrathful God. That's not true. He is both, and he is both at the same time, and he is perfectly holy. Here's the problem. If you have a God, if you want a God without wrath, a God without wrath doesn't punish sin. Just lets it go. So a God without wrath doesn't go to the cross. Uh, Miroslav Volf wrote this. A non-indignant God would be an accomplice in injustice, deception, and violence. Fleming Rutledge wrote uh, of the wrath the world needs and said, we believe injustice must be punished, but somehow in light of our sins, we struggle with God's wrath. So if you think of salvation in Christ as only of love and forgiveness, you are neglecting a central aspect of the gospel. You're neglecting the true character of God. You're misunderstanding the cross. What was John the Baptist's fiery message? You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to, go, to come? Who, who warned you to flee from God's wrath? But again, some Christians don't like the wrath. They think, oh, God's just loving. Can't we just not talk about the wrath? They, they can't picture a God. They can't fathom a God who could be both loving and wrathful at the same time and perfectly holy. And they say they believe the gospel? And they say they believe that Jesus died on the cross. Well, do they understand what happened at the cross? They love the for God so loved the world part, but somehow they missed the, the point of that he gave his only son. He gave his only son over to brutal death where he took all the wrath of God against our sin upon himself so that we might live. Romans 5, 8 says God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 1 John 4, 10, in this is love, not that we loved God, but that he first loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation is an atoning mercy seat sacrifice that pays for sins and appeases the wrath of God. This is wrath in the service of love to give God greatest glory and give us eternal good. There was one false teacher that actually said this. I don't care who you are, what you have done, who you have done it with. God is not angry at you. And completely absent was any view of the biblical God and of, of sin and of the cross. So why do you need to come to Christ if there's no wrath, if there's no anger against sin? Jesus saves us from the wrath of God. And God has made avoiding this wrath rather simple. Genuine faith, believing in the gospel message of the life-giving God who raised Jesus from the dead. Second implication. It's not about empty words, but a heart and life transformed by God. The gospel isn't about empty words, Confessing Christ goes beyond words to a fully yielded heart and life. And that's a daily thing, isn't it? Like, we go off trail all the time. We swerve. We start doubting. And, and that's why we got to preach the gospel to ourselves and remind our loved ones what the gospel message is. And what happens is we stumble because we're unwilling to submit to the king of the universe and his saving righteousness. In, in the book of Romans, we are bounded, we are constrained by, by bookends, really, in chapter 1, verse 5, and chapter 16, verse 26. It's called the obedience of faith. 
the obedience of faith. That means bowing the knee to Christ as Lord. There's a story told of a defeated French admiral greeting his victor, Admiral Nelson, with a handshake of congratulations. And Nelson refuses his hand and says, Sir, your sword first. Only if the sword was surrendered could there be fellowship. But there's a lot of professing Christians that will say, well, I said a prayer once, I can do what I want. And, and they think that the Christian life is just fun with their friend Jesus. He is your friend. He says, you're my friends if you do what I say. Believing is bowing the knee to Christ. Don't get lost in the weeds on this. Don't miss this. When you die and you stand before God, you're either going to argue that you should get into heaven because you've been so good, or you'll say, you know, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. God did in Christ for me what I could never do for myself. I'm going to abandon my efforts and trust in Christ. Faith is not just an idea in your mind. It, it it, it must be, you must be convinced of it and, and experience its power. And, and, as you're, and when you're born again by the Spirit of God, you, you have a testimony that God changed your life. Those who refuse the gospel have no excuse. Those who refuse to confess Christ might not have the life. If you're ashamed or afraid to acknowledge Christ, you might not be saved. If you can't confess Christ as Lord, you, you may not have believed in your heart. And I think there's a lot of people who need to get unsaved from false views of salvation so that they can get saved by, by the gospel message of the only Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Third implication is, it isn't just a one-time thing of saying a prayer, it's a continuing pursuit of following Christ by faith in the power of the Spirit. A lot of people misunderstand salvation. They think, well, it's just about praying a prayer, or I said I believed something, uh, that I got in the door, that's all I need to do, but they don't realize it's part of the whole journey. There's a whole journey from start to finish. Jesus is the author and perfecter of faith. You continue in the Christian life, in the power of the indwelling Spirit of God, denying yourself, following Christ. I want to point out to you that when it says that you shall be saved, that's in the future tense. It's a genuine future, that you have blessings of salvation you can experience now, but you will experience it fully future. It's future salvation assured for those in Christ. We believe in eternal security. We believe in assurance of salvation. You get converted to Christ. You're born again by the Spirit of God. You're regenerated and God has you. But there are a lot of steps along the way where you've got to choose to obey or not. Go in the way that God wills or not. And you must want that. You must want Christ's authority over you. And every one of us knows, if you're a believer, you know that it, whoever has received the new birth doesn't obey perfectly. None of us obey perfectly. That's, that's why we need mercy still. Every single day. And God, and God calls us to be merciful with our brothers and sisters in Christ because we all need mercy. But this is not just about conversion. This is about sanctification. And when you're confessing Christ as Lord, there's a sanctifying aspect of it in your life. 
uh, where you publicly identify with other believers, that helps you. Uh, where you're giving your baptism testimony, that helps you. When you tell other, other uh, people about Christ, you tell unbelievers about Christ, that keeps you on your toes. Now they're going to be watching you. And when you're confessing Christ in, in God-dependent prayer with your fellow brothers and sisters. Fourth implication, it's not about your own truth, but about God's unchanging truth. You've got to believe the true truth. People are going around going, oh, I believe the truth, and they're not believing the truth. You've got to believe the true truth. One Christian leader said this, churches are producing a generation of people who cannot handle the challenges of other world religions like Islam. They're unable to navigate because they don't know their Bibles. Notable leaders of, of compromised churches think there isn't that much difference between Islam and Christianity. They'll say, well, we have points of agreement. Here's what's true about Islam. They don't believe we have the Bible. They think the New Testament meaning was lost. They don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God. They don't believe he died and rose again and is coming again as authoritative king. They don't have the gospel. But so many professing Christians don't know what they believe. And when falsehood hits the average Christian playing church, you know, having their best life now, there's not one mention of the cross. There's not one mention of sin. There's not one, a mention of the gospel and, and compromise results. You cannot expose a counterfeit unless you know the real thing really well. Fifth implication. The gospel is not about what you do. It's about what God enables. The gospel is what God has done to save his people, not the conditions we must meet to be saved. It's not how good you are. Some people think they are so good, but to understand Christianity Correctly, you must grasp the surprising fact that blows up your pride. Salvation is something you can never earn or deserve. You cannot be good enough to earn your place in heaven. Robert Murray Machane once was handling out a gospel pamphlets to people, and he, he gave one to a very well-dressed, proper lady, and, and she gave him a proud look and said, Sir, you must not know who I am. To which he kindly replied, There is a coming day of judgment. And on that day, it will not make any difference who you are. Last implication, and then we'll be done. Last implication, number six. It's not about, the gospel is not about personal comfort. It, there is a public cost. If you surrender yourself to the Lordship of Christ, you say Jesus is Lord, which by the way is the shortest statement of faith in the Bible, but it encompasses so much. It encompasses the whole gospel message and all of our hope. You're saying, when you say Jesus is Lord, you're saying Jesus shares the same name, nature, character, deity, power, authority, majesty, and eternity of the one true God, because he is the one true God. And this, this confession is time sensitive. It's while you're here, while you're, we're following Christ. But do you know what the opposite of confess is? It is denial. It is denial. I, I think of Peter. He was so crushed that he denied Christ, but he denied Christ. Salvation is not just saying, Lord, Lord, but you align yourself with Jesus. You identify with him as your Lord and Redeemer. And, and why was it such a big deal when Peter denied Christ? Why was it such a big deal that, that Jesus led him to repentance and actually uh, recommissioned him into service? Why was it such a big deal that on the day of Pentecost, Peter was able to stand up and boldly proclaim the gospel message with heart-piercing words and a gospel-driven passion? 2 Timothy 2.12 says, If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. 
Titus 1.16 talks about people who confess with their lips but deny Christ with their life. The people who profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him, being, present tense, continually detestable, which means stinking, disobedient, worthless for any good deed. Now let me take you back to the first century time when this was written. In, in, in Rome, there was a cost. You call on Christ as Lord in the first century Rome, that was risky dangerous business. Augustus was called Lord. He was worshipped as God. Caesars were worshipped as God. So when you called Jesus Lord in first century Rome, it meant that you're saying Jesus ranks higher than the emperor. Now polytheism was huge in, in, in first century. And you could, you could believe as many gods as you wanted as long as you kept the emperor in first place. But if you say that Jesus is preeminent, you are putting your head on the chopping block. That was a touchstone of faith. It made you a target. It, it, it was a cause of tension. It led to conflict. You could worship as many gods as you wanted, as long as you still worship the emperor. But Christians who say Jesus Christ is Lord, he's my authority, you're saying, I'm not my own master anymore. You're saying, I'm in everything a bondservant of Christ. And no Jew would do that who did not trust Christ. They would not say Jesus is Lord if they didn't trust Christ. They'd get kicked out of the synagogue. No pagan Gentile who had not stopped worshiping the emperor would ever say Jesus is Lord. But we like popular, and we will align and identify with popular, won't we? But we dislike unpopular, and if it's unpopular to profess faith in Christ, we'll abstain and we'll falsify the information. The question is, bottom line, what is the cost for us? What is the cost for me? What is the cost for you of confessing Christ as Lord? Pray with me, please. Lord, we, Lord, we call you Lord. We, we, you call us to discipleship, to believe in you, to confess you as Lord, to yield our whole life to you. And only by your grace and mercy can we do that. Only by your grace and mercy can we live. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen. We get to come to the table now. And Thanks for listening. For more information about Grace, please visit our website at graceorange.org.